Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode nine of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. In today's episode, we're going to talk about reputation and how we square the honorable, noteworthy traits of a person with an unsavory past. Our reputation is the perceived value of a person and their likely contributions to a society, job, relationship, or situation. If you're hiring someone for a job at a company, we're going to look at the totality of their career to that point and how it fits with the responsibilities we're looking to fill. We look at a person's resume because it will tell the story of this person's career arc. Where did they start? How have they demonstrated growth? Have they mastered certain skill sets? Do they look like someone who can continue to grow into a role? If I'm hiring in 2018, it would be a little silly to judge someone solely from a job that they held 10 years ago because it misses 10 years of story that is relevant to the person we see in front of us today. Yet, when it comes to a person's reputation in our interpersonal relationships, we oftentimes don't see the potential in other people to change based on a real or perceived understanding of who we think that person is. We aren't quick to offer them the same benefit of the doubt or graciousness we extend to ourselves in understanding our own growth. And the day this podcast episode will publish actually happens to be Columbus Day, a day that honors a man whose reputation is revered in grade school textbooks and children's songs, but whose actions paint a story of a diabolical person. And so we'll use Columbus as a kind of jumping off point to our discussion on reputation, because if we look at his resume, we see a dude who was really instrumental in shaping history and where we find ourselves today. But then if you really drill down to the details, you see a really dark portrait of a genocidal person. And so I'm going to read some facts from uh, an essay uh, or an excerpt from the book Indians Are Us. Uh, and the title of which is Columbus and the Beginning of Genocide in the New World. Because, uh, Brandon, I've understood, you know, things that I learned in school myself. I was really surprised to learn, and I, I've kind of known this over the last few years, that he was genocidal, that he really did some brutal things. But it was only actually this week that I discovered some really stark numbers mm. and facts and figures about, like, what that actually looked like. And, and so I'll read some of those off. Um but so when he came to uh, to America in 1492, uh, he returned in 1493 with an invasion force of 17 ships appointed at his own request by the Spanish crown to install himself as governor uh, of islands, which we now consider, uh, are, which are now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And he instituted policies of slavery and systematic uh, extermination against the native population. And when he got there, the indigenous numbers were as many as 8 million at the onset. And then by the next year, or by three years later, it was reduced from 8 million to about 3 million in just the span of three years. And then by the time uh, his reign was over, by the time he departed, it was all the way down to 100,000. So it was as high as 8 million when he first got there. And then uh, by the time he left, it was virtually extinct, you know, down to 100,000 people. That's a lot. That's a lot of it's uh, a lot of bloodshed and, and loss and extermination. Um, so uh, that's kind of surprising, and I think would be surprising to a lot of people um, who you know that paints a very stark contrast to what we learn about him in school. Yeah, we um, 
we don't know too much about Columbus growing up, except for the little poems that they teach us in order to help us remember the historical fact of his coming, and we credit him for this discovery of the Americas. Um, you know, I remember actually there wasn't a distinction be between him sort of like really discovering the United States <laughs> versus just discovering the land and that it existed. You know, there's um, such, um, there was a lot of clarity there. But, you know, I, I remember that little poem, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I remember that being uh, sort of beat into me in a sense, you know, when I was in third and fourth grade and probably later, you know, um, and so much so that I still have it on automatic recall, you know, in my elder years. <laughs> um, and uh, it has a little tune to it, you know, it has a little, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice little happy jingle, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's yeah. great. It's got a nice rhythm. It's got a great meter to it, right? And, you know, the reality of knowing that Columbus actually was partially, if not mostly, responsible for the eradication of millions of indigenous people, of, Native, of First First Nations people, indigenous people in, in the Americas, in the place of Haiti. I mean, like, what, what are we doing from 8 million all the way down to 100,000 is, I mean, you guys can do the math on that, you know? Um, and then what are the implications of that um our last episode we talked about generational trauma well this would be that this would be the inciting incident um in a lot of ways that if you look at the country of haiti now let's just say that so much of that is actually generational trauma that maybe could be derivated from columbus and his original visit and occupation and colonization of that area um and then putting himself in a place of power and for what purpose? For his own purpose, for the purpose of building kingdom and for establishing kingdom um, uh, or an empire, you know, for the Spanish government. So, um, you know, I, I, I think um, for many of us, you know, this is bliss to not know this, you know. Um, well, I will say this, you know, I asked this question to Mark earlier. I said, if ignorance is truly bliss, who is it blissful for? And, um, and I think that that statement is partially true. The ignorance is bliss if you benefit from not knowing it, if you benefit from the ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss if you do not benefit from not knowing. <laughs> you know, if you're on maybe the black or brown side of the table, um, being ignorant is the thing that we strive not to be because it's within our power to be educated, which is why there's so much, you know, throughout history that has kept black and brown people from being educated, actually having knowledge, you know, of what's actually happened um, in our own, in our own uh, line of ancestry. Um, but in the knowledge of that, you know, I've grown in, into a place of, uh, um, of protest and civil disobedience, you know, that has had much benefit. Um, for white America, for people that are white, it is um, losing ignorance that has um, helped our cause, but in staying ignorant, have the ability to remain in power, stay um, within the within this option or, or within the boundary line of everything's okay. And I think that that's where we are in a lot of ways in the country today. Um, things are better, but um, 
I would say in a significant way better than coming from Columbus. <laughs> but um, uh, there are so many things that you're not going to find out about him in a textbook when you're growing up. And um, his reputation um, uh, does not, well, his reputation precedes him, though it not be accurate. And that's not to actually say that, that, that we shall not credit Columbus for why we are here today in some ways, but we should also take the person at their whole and uh, their ability to change um, for good or for bad, um, uh, or rather to display who they really are over time and then look at how history really looks at this person. Um, should we not be responsible for knowing who he really is so as not to repeat history again? Yeah. And I, you know, what we do know about Columbus, um, well, now, if you dig a little bit deeper, I would say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, what I knew about Columbus were positive attributes, or maybe not even associated with his character, because I don't really know what his character was like. But based on where we find ourselves, we find ourselves now occupying a land called the United States of America, who we think has done some really fabulous things for mm -hmm. the world. So I, I think looking back at this, we say, okay, well, how did we get here? And Columbus was really instrumental in that. He was a, you know, we talk about discovery, and um, and I think that that's mm -hmm. really f like a positive word. And so we associate that with him, and we just say, okay, well, because of where we find ourselves now, how we got here, we're going to revere that person who, you know, there was a lot of risk associated with that. There was a lot of money that went into, mm -hmm. you know, the voyage to get here in 1492. Um, it was a whole thing. Um, but then if we look at the context of, and like I said, really drill down to the details, man, this dude might not have been such a good dude after all. You know, is a good dude, is a good person going to exhibit that kind of brutality? Was that brutality kind of the norm then? Um, so I don't know that we can like, I, we can defend Columbus so much, right? But, um, but I think it does raise some good questions about how history changes and how history judges people. Um, and I think raises some questions about um, the totality of how we look at someone. Even, and it doesn't have to be 400, 500 years ago. It can be 20 years ago. It can be 40 years ago. Uh, it can be even within our lifetime. You know, um, things that I did 10 years ago, I'm not necessarily proud of, but I can see how I've grown and I've changed. And I like who I am today better than who I was then because I feel like I'm a little healthier. But uh, what are the positive things that we say about people and are those wrong? Is it really the diabolical nature of them that is the truest reflection of that person? Yeah. To go back for just a second, just to touch on something that I thought of as you were talking, Mark, I think, can we hold, can we defend Columbus? Can we, I don't know, like the, this is one of those things, whether it's him or whether it's another historical figure, whether it's the powers that be that instigated, you know, this whole middle passage journey to the Americas, you know, capturing black and brown people and bringing them over via the slave trade. We could, I think this is where the, this is where the difficulty is. It's like those people had families, they had children, um, they had parents, they had grandparents, they were normal people. And then you get everybody together and say, we think we should get all the black people on a boat and make a lot of money with them and sell them and brutalize them. And somehow along the way, we have to then say that these were normal, 
God-fearing family men. <laughs> and that's difficult to, to do. That's a really difficult thing. And then, to, and then to actually look back at them and say, oh, well, these are the founders of the country. This is not just anybody. This is like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, um, you know, gosh, just go see the musical Hamilton for Pete's sake. You know, there's just a lot of things there that are really, really complicated that either culturally they were acceptable and the men were still good or they became culturally unacceptable at a certain point and the men didn't bend and they were st and, and they were bad. But they weren't holistically evil, right? Can we say that they were? Can I prove that they were? And does that mean that they shouldn't be held accountable for what they did? That was an obstruction to the life of, of another people group. I think that it's like saying, you know, that if someone um, commits murder, um, but they're still 90% good, should they not be held accountable for the murder? And I think that, I don't think there's any one of us that would say that that person shouldn't get whatever penalty is due to them because of what they did, even if the 10%. And the reason why we don't do that is because it's when that decision is destructive to the life of another person, to the lives of several people, a whole people group, they need to be held accountable to that. So, but instead of holding someone accountable, we've actually looked and taken Columbus and revered him and made an icon out of him. And we don't hold him accountable to his to his attritions, um, to to the atrocity of his life choices, um, and not just him, but the Spanish crown. I wonder if I mean, where where is that adjudication coming from? <laughs> you know, on you know, and um, anyway, I just I just wanted to make that clear that even in the context of our talking, we're not in any sense like working to to pacify what Columbus did or what the founders of the country did in in terms of. Um, being um, really compliant with what was going on in the context of the slave trade um, or slavery. And, um, but, but, but we are taking time to acknowledge that there is a complexity in the psychology of people and in, in, in the psychology of communities that is relatable to where we're at today and how we're going to get through this mire, how we're going to get through this junk it's going to be by actually humanizing one another while being principled, learning how to communicate around some of the things. And what Mark brought up just now is, you know, um, what what are um, the positive things that we might even say about ourselves, um, but are we actually distancing ourselves from the negative things that we did maybe 10 or 20 years ago um, is that fair? Is that holistic? Um, am I a person that's able to grow um, and change? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm escaping consequences um, for some of the things, if not all the things that I've done that were in the context of growth. Mm -hmm. so, um, um, so in that sense, I guess in answering this question, I don't think that the positive things that we say about people are necessarily wrong, but they're just not holistic. They don't take into... Um, take in into account that the fullness of a person and our and our individual capacity for lightness and our capacity for darkness also and um you know i i i i don't think we have anything you know that we can necessarily do about that except to be mature and recognize that we have the capacity for for for, for both but we do also have the capacity to choose more light in our lives and to grow into 
what that means to, to grow into a skill of choosing light, living in the tension of choice um, to do good or to do harm. And it's kind of complicated because we we kind of we understand this on a micro level. We understand ourselves grow. We understand that um, you know who I was at eighteen isn't going to be who I am at thirty. And so we take these kind of these attitudes, but we don't apply them to say history on a macro level. We don't apply them to societal growth overall. And then we also tend to think that societal progress is linear. Uh, mm. where I don't think that there's any uh, you don't find that truth anywhere else in our lives so even in our own lives like we obviously we grow we become bigger nobody shrinks but when we're talking about our own growth our character development it uh, tends to deviate you know up or down depending on kind of the experiences that we encounter in our lives uh, and and but then we take those snapshots and we we apply them to other people and we judge them by those and we kind of create this static environment for people that we don't apply to ourselves. And so if I'm, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, and if I'm going to apply at a job, nobody's going to take my kindergarten yearbook and say, Mark, dude, you can't even write a sentence back there. You can't even form a, a sentence. How, mm -hmm. how do you think that you can become a writer now? Mm -hmm. um, and that would be kind of silly, but we do, we kind of do tend to do that when it comes to people. Uh, and we don't apply the same graciousness that we do to ourselves. Um, you know, in the context of, of a macro uh, existing in society together, uh, we don't we don't tend to really believe yeah. that people can change and grow. Yeah, I think that you know when it comes to the polarization and otherization, you know that's the static environment that you're describing. I think is you know whether it's politics. I mean, politics are a great example, of course, right now. Um, you know, if you're on the right, then you're looking at the left and going you are diabolically horrible people. If you were on the left looking at people on the right, you were saying you were diabolically horrible people. And what we've gotten really ensnared in is judging people's character versus judging their behaviors. And when I'm talking to someone and, and uh, in a conversation with them, I'm not gonna know the whole of their character because I don't see them when they're alone. I don't see them in all circumstances of their lives. You know maybe I see people make decisions and I go, I disagree with that decision, even at a moral level, at a human human value level or at a, a, a severely principled level that is opposed to my own. Um, but it makes it really, really difficult, you know, for me to actually say that this person is inherently evil or bad. And I feel like that's exactly what we're doing is creating an environment, you know, where um, no one can change, you know, no one can grow. Um, my interaction with a person can't be can't help to, to, to change another person or to influence another person um, and uh, and vice versa you know I, I can't be talking to someone that's an influence over me either if it's so static so you know yeah and we take these snapshots and we and I think context is important because um, you know if I'm learning how to walk and I'm you know, three years old or however old you are when you are learning to walk and I stumble, like that's normal. But if I'm walking down the street of Washington, D.C. and I'm like tripping and falling all over myself, people are like, okay, well, this man clearly has some problems and he shouldn't, like there's a certain point in your life where people just think that you should have certain things together. And that's true to a point, but also, you know, people can be 50-year-old 
So they can be 60 year olds and they haven't reached a point of enlightenment or maturity uh, that maybe you should have reached by that point. But, you know, life is uh, a discovery. It's a lifelong discovery of becoming, uh, of entering into a better knowledge and understanding of who you are and who you are in context with other people. So contextualizing is important, but mm -hmm. we take these snapshots. And you mentioned the politics, like even in Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, uh, you saw there was an incident where a Parkland, a father of a Parkland survivor, at the end of one of the, the hearings, I think they were going into a break. You know, there's a lot of volatility around the hearing uh, already. There were demonstrations, people interrupting the hearing, standing up, people getting dragged away and arrested uh, or removed from the confirmation hearing. And so it was just a really volatile setting. And then at the end of it, during a break, Parkland survivor or uh, someone who was actually killed in Parkland, his father, he wanted to meet, he wanted to shake Kavanaugh's hand, so he stood up, makes his way across the room, sticks his hand out to shake Kavanaugh's hand. Kavanaugh ultimately doesn't shake his hand, but the picture that made its rounds on social media and in, in the news was this man extending his hand, Kavanaugh kind of giving him a blank stare, and, uh, and the story around that, the narrative was that Kavanaugh snubbed this father of a Parkland student mm -hmm. uh, who was killed, mm -hmm. uh, and so we kind of created this idea of, about Kavanaugh who was based on that split second that mm -hmm. moment and where for some people uh, they can completely understand why Kavanaugh didn't shake his hand he, did, they, he didn't know who he was his mind is around his, the totality of his life's work it, you know if you consider it like an interview uh, and then suddenly you're in this volatile environment this man comes at you you don't know if he's friend or foe and he has to make a decision in that moment, you know, whether he's going to shake his hand. What are the optics? Who is this guy? Am I going to shake his hand in front of cameras? And so there's some people who are like, okay, I can understand that. I can understand why he didn't shake his hand. But everything about that moment, that picture, is informed by probably our preconceived politics, right? If we already think that Kavanaugh is going to be a man who gets onto the court and then he restricts women's rights and minority rights, then our reaction to that image is going to be informed by that. And if we think that Kavanaugh is a good contextualist, a good judge, we're going to look at that picture and we're going to kind of say, okay, well, that's not really him. This is the context of the situation. And those are at odds together. Those can't exist yeah. in the same, you know, there's there's a truth behind that ultimately that we just, we can't arrive at because we're conflicted on it. Yeah. And, and functionally, you know, we're building our lives at this point off of 30 second sound bites. <laughs> you know, we're building our opinions of people based on you know what the media gives us at any given point um you know which is way different you know than really any time of history you know uh in in terms of how fast we can get that information and access it um literally in real time and we're developing opinions about people here again developing opinions about their character and we do this within the context of our relationships all the time you know where we look at a person someone does something and we think Oh my gosh, why did you do that to me? You were obviously a horrible person, right? We have a 30-second soundbite of an interaction. It's one interaction, right or wrong. It's not saying that it's wrong what the person does, but the holder of their value, we love to say you are not valuable anymore because you are doing something or I've learned something about you that I do not like. And here again, I think, you know, our our podcast is on bias, it's on race, you know, fit we just have to think about this because it's it's super complicated and super visceral emotionally um, and historically, you know, for us to 
um, you know, look at the opposing party, look at the other side, not even the opposition, right? Rather, what what we are doing is looking at, um, if you're African-American or, or black, looking at the majority, mostly white, and you're saying you there is something um, wrong with you, like there is something in your character and your value as people that is broken and wrong. And then the other side, the majority is doing the same thing to the black and brown. How is anyone supposed to reach any kind of an alignment or or any kind of agreement? How are we going to actually learn to walk together in unity in what reconciliation can actually look like? How could we even be creative and innovative in, in the context of all of that if we're not willing to have a reset of our default setting um, of knowing, of just recognizing that there's value in every person? Secondly to that, I think even in the context of the conversation around Columbus and even some other historical figures is, you know, the, the need to recontextualize. It's not to take away maybe, maybe, and I know that this is hard, but is it that I want Columbus stripped of the honor of discovery? It's, I don't know if I want that, but it's also complicated. The reason why it's complicated is because he has this other history that's not being told. So what I want is a contextualization, a re Con a recontextualization of the fullness of his story and his contribution to the world. I want that whole story told and where and how and in what circumstances can that story be contextualized in a way that is appropriate. And we talk about this in the context of, of, uh, of the Civil War monuments and things of that nature, you know, as like a... Um, you know, a small like alternative, you know, to turning them over or ripping them down is to actually keep them up, but to recontextualize with a holistic understanding, with a holistic approach, what is the real story here? What is the real story around a Robert E. Lee monument in South Carolina? What's the real story around, around that monument in Charlottesville? What's the real story around the monuments in New Orleans? You know, and like instead of removing them out of being afraid of talking about the story, I think I'd still want to know about the story. And this is the one thing that I keep missing. It's like we can tear them down, but we still don't know the truth. And so it bothers me, <laughs> you know, because I'm like, well, we killed one thing. We, we killed the emblem, saying it was inappropriate that they lived anyway or that they were around. But then we just didn't bother to educate anybody differently. But but here again, it just goes to this thing about not about not being willing to see people as complicated and so giving them the benefit of the doubt of their inherent value because they were just because you live and because you're human, you have a value whether or not, you know, you do something, you know, wrong or, or like atrocious or good and bad with that life. You know, like we're multiply, um, well, I mean, the most of us are living out of light and darkness at the same time and, and at best or at least in a struggle with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, and the, the further removed from history, the more difficult it is to see the nuance. Like we don't know really a whole lot unless you become someone who's just really vested in understanding who Columbus was as a person. We, we won't really know who he was as a person. So, and I don't know that we should really judge or it shouldn't be necessary for us to judge who they were as people, but as you, as you spoke to uh, honoring the, their contributions uh, and not necessarily making, I guess, moral judgments about their character um, based on some things that we, we can pull out or understand and learn about them. And then there's people who, you know, the closer we get to modern day, we can we can maybe make some moral judgments about their character. But even that is kind of informed about the around the norms of where we find ourselves. So, you know, we can look at ourselves and we can see, OK, I myself am a complex human being with growth possibility, uh, a, a be gracious and apply that to other people. Um, and then, you know, even in recent history, you know, 40, 50 years ago, I was kind of surprised to learn this about a, an individual who was instrumental in the civil rights 
era was this person and I'm gonna kind of list some characteristics about this person and allow you to make a value judgment about this person and whether they were good or bad but this was a, a statesman who regularly used the n-word in private conversation I don't even know if it was just private I think he just explicitly used it in business dealings he used the n-word he regularly when he was a legislature in his home state regularly voted against opportunities and advancements for black people um, you know civil rights litigation at, at a state's level but so this person and looking at that snapshot of this person you might say oh man that's not a very good person you know he doesn't sound like someone that I would want to sit at a table with and break bread with him uh, or certainly not give him authority you know greater authority expand his authority uh, but this person is actually Lyndon B. Johnson, who was uh, who became president. He was vice president when Kennedy was killed. He uh, assumed the office of the presidency, uh, and then he was instrumental in uh, rolling out the Civil Rights Act uh, and legislation that completely transformed uh, opportunity, uh, economic and political opportunity for for black people in this country. Um, and so, but if we judged him just based on that snapshot, we would be missing a whole lot about this individual who I think is obviously contributed a lot of good. Yeah. LBJ is an interesting character in history. I will tell you that. I mean, he is talking about the ability of a person to change, <laughs> um, even if it's a complicated change, <laughs> it's not you know, I mean, you know, King had these conversations with Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, I think that Johnson actually said that at a certain point that that King, you know, was a nuisance to him because of how active he was in this like nonviolence thing. And King was stirring up all this trouble, you know, doing all these sit-ins and things like that. You know, and I think that and all these demonstrations. And I think that um, you know that work in the public square that was going on in terms of the opposition to the status quo was creating enough headache for LBJ that he that he had to consider an alternative. Um, so that's an an intention that maybe we, we wouldn't see as so much of an altruist sort of intention. However, um, he could have continued to be a stalwart on a lot of the things going on in the country then. He could have not been a spokesperson for um, an increased measure of equity and equality during the time, but that's not exactly what he did. I mean, he waffled back and forth a little bit and then eventually, you know, was an outspoken proponent, you know, of um, of the Civil Rights Act and was able to get those, those things accomplished. So, um, among other things, you know. So, um, but here again, I think that, you know, for for Mark, you know, what, what, what he's doing and what I want to do is we want to just say, look, this is a complicated growth and most of us are going through complicated growth. Um, if you're listening to this and you were a Lyndon B. Johnson sitting in the back room of your business, um, you know, having meetings using the N-word um, to, to, to talk about um, how um, horrible the black person was, um, how horrible the Negro was and how they're just a, a drain on society and culture, <laughs> you know, or you're doing that maybe in your own way now, you know, maybe you're a millennial and you do that in a certain kind of way. Maybe you're um, a 30 something or a 40 something year old person and you say things out of your mouth that are not indicative with what you present into the world. Um, then I think that for 
Mark and I today, the point we're, we're, that we're trying to make is that there's hope for change within the context of a person and that there are reasons um, why that growth happens, there, that there are reasons why people choose to live in the light and there are reasons why people choose to live in the dark. And a lot of, uh, a lot of times people don't even know that, that they're living in a choice. They don't know, they're, they're not confronted with that tension um, you know, of uh, choosing light and dark because of ignorance. And one of the, under, helping to understand that growth, uh, th I think there's different ways that we've tried to go about that and achieve that in society. In the church, for example, you might call that sanctification, which is the process of growing and becoming more holy uh, while simultaneously recognizing that you in your present form are loved and good. Um, but then there's always this process of becoming more holy or a better person or a more healthy person, which is kind of language we might use in the secular world. And there's always these kind of personality tests and strength finders and things that try to help us understand who we are as people. And one of those that's really popular right now is the Enneagram. Uh, and one reason I like this one specifically um, more than just that it's new and the current thing that people are talking about but it outlines different levels of healthiness or unhealthiness and it kind of gives a portrait of what that person is so you know they, they have different types uh, and you take a test and a quiz and based on your answers it's gonna assign a type to you and then it's gonna give you some really some attributes about who you kind of are as a person and um, and then it's gonna give you some attributes where if you're operating out of strength or in a business context, like these are things, or in a, in a relationship, these things are helpful for you to know. But my favorite part is that it outlines and it gives you a portrait of who you are and where you find yourself on kind of average or unhealthy or healthy levels. Um, and so you can see, you know, oh man, I'm really demonstrating these kind of attributes right now. And they have this labeled as average or unhealthy. But I also see a portrait of a person who I have potential to be if I'm operating completely out of healthiness. And so I think that that's really a, kind of a cool thing. And one reason I love it so much is because it kind of does give you a hope and something that you can work toward uh, to becoming a, a more healthy person. Yeah, the Enneagram is one of my favorite tools. You know, it's distinctive in a sense if you have taken Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finder um, and and in particular, you know, the Myers-Briggs, you know, works to assess personality. Um, the Enneagram, um, you know, is, is purely based on psychology. You know, it is, uh, and like the environment with which you've grown up in that has created certain typologies within behavior, um, wants and needs um, versus um, some affirmations and avoidance of pain and things of that nature, you know, and uh, and uh, definitely try and fit this within the the overall cultural context, you know, of the things we talk about, um, uh, not excluding race, of course, but um, as a, a person that's fascinated with the Enneagram, um, have learned that my particular type, um, you know, and for every type, um, with, with within its context, within its measurement, has a genesis. Um, for me, I have a, there is a genesis in my environment as it interacts with my biology that creates 
a behavior template within me <laughs> that avoids pain in a certain way, but I also do good in a certain way when I'm living in my most healthy place. Um, I also have access to any of the other typologies within the matrix of the Enneagram. Um, when I'm at my healthiest place, I can move from one to another. Um, basically, the benefit is this, and this goes to the overall point that we're making, is that people change. People grow, and we are not always the sum of our behaviors. We are the sum of things that have happened to us. <laughs> um, we are being moved, and uh, we are moving based upon things that have happened to us and things that have not happened to us. We are moved by history. Uh, we are moved by the stories that we hear, um, by the stories we've been told, whether that's in the positive or in the negative. And, uh, you know, the Enneagram is really good for giving us language, you know, for for, for what it means to be the healthiest version of ourselves, um, or at least to strive towards that and what that can look like. Um, but the ultimate, you know, um, point of this whole story is that whether you're Columbus or whether you're Donald Trump or whether you are, um, I don't know, Louis Farrakhan or whoever it is, you know, that each person... All of us has the ability to grow, has the ability to change, has the ability to transform, has the ability to be sanctified, has the um, has the real capacity for living in enlightenment, for living in a perpetual condition of of curiosity about ourselves that helps us be better people, better friends, better family members, um, better citizens, um, better philanthropists with our resources. And um, sometimes we just need a little help to get there. Community is a part of it. And even cool little tests like the Enneagram, which I encourage everyone to take. Um, because if if because when you have a conversation with me and it's the first time we'll meet, I'll probably ask you what your Enneagram type is. Nice. <laughs> I love it, too. I actually, I've, uh, I've only been told what people think I am. I actually have to take the test to, like, to really figure take that out. Take the test. Take the test. Uh, so we're coming up on time. We want to kind of leave you with a couple of calls to action. Um, one is one thing that I think you can do right now is take an inventory of where you are living in the light and where you're living in the darkness. That's some language that we used in this episode. You could also say where are you living healthy and where are you living unhealthy? And what are some actionable steps you can take to move closer to the light? What are some actionable steps you can take to move closer to healthiness? And uh, because change won't appear overnight. Like nobody just like makes a decision that they're going to be this way tomorrow. Uh, because um, I think understanding and studies have demonstrated that if you try to quit cold, cold turkey, for example, quit a bad habit, you're not going to be successful in that. Real change actually takes almost indiscernible disruption to your daily life. You you introduce a new habit or you introduce a new belief and you kind of sit in that and you learn in it and you master it. And then it's like building scaffolding. Then once you introduce that and you've incorporated that into your life, then you can introduce a new indiscernible habit into your life. Uh, and then you build on that and you grow on it just like you would learning a skill or something in your career. If you're in journalism or uh, what have you, if you're in medicine, you're always introducing new things that aren't hugely disruptive to your career growth. 
um, and apply that to your personal life. What are those things? What are those steps you can do to do that? Yeah, um, I would also say, I think that's great, Mark. And I, I think um, in in line with all of that is we should all be really considering the overall purpose and point of our existence of our lives. We should be pondering that, <laughs> um, if not the value system behind what we do and how we live, uh, behind what our purpose is. And if I'm to assume that, you know, at the meaning of value, um, at the meaning of, of my purpose is that I want to do good, I want to be good, I want to be better, um, then then there is a a real approach in my daily life real movements that I make in my daily life to really assess what goodness is, to really assess what it means to live out a life that is good, as opposed to living out a life that is self-preserving and selfish, and um, which is really where we get a lot of the diabolical behavior <laughs> that we get, um, we could be looked at and be judged by. I think when it comes right down to it, it's, a, it's, it's avoidance of pain, it's trying to hold on to power or, or control of, of some kind so we feel better about the fact that we're not who we want to be. And I think that going on the courageous road, um, this courageous, dark, and windy, dusty road um, to say, who am I? To be curious, am I the person that I say I want to be is uh, the best thing that we can do for ourselves. It helps move us forward in these conversations on race and everything else. And it's important too that uh, in you know in asking those questions, am I who the person who I want to be? There also has to be forgiveness in who you are today, in the fact that you aren't that Certainly. person. You know, Absolutely. you have to be accept. You have to accept who you are, because uh, you know if you're rid ridden by that guilt, then that's going to be a burden to you, and it's going to be a burden to your your growth and progress. So you really have to be content and accept who you are, mm-hmm. full knowing that you have the potential to evolve and to transform and to mm-hmm. change. Absolutely. So, and I think that actually we talked about last episode that we were going to talk about ego. Um, and I think that, you know, being Columbus Day, we, we kind of wanted to take this route instead and talk about reputation. But I think next week we really will talk about ego and how it's our ego that drives some of those diabolical behaviors in trying to preserve the self, you know, uh, through either just staying alive or by trying to hold on to preserve a reputation that we want. And so uh, we'll tackle that next week. And in the meantime, thank you for tuning into this one. And we always appreciate your feedback. We've really gotten some great feedback. So we, we hope that you keep that coming. And uh, yeah, so we'll see you next time. Same, same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.